Matthew chapter 1, a story many of you have heard before, found in verses 18 through 23. There we read these words. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall be with a child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. This is the word of God. Please be seated. In her work, Alone Together, a sociologist and author, Sherry Turkle, explores the effects of digital technology and how it has effectively broken down and ruined many, many relationships. Her desire is to see the the long-term effects specifically of social media on younger generations. And one of the most fascinating parts of her works comes towards the end when she interviews a young man who who speaks with great nostalgia and he he speaks of of his desire to return to those days when he and his friends used to write handwritten letters to each other and he speaks of the desire to return to the day when he and his friends would speak to one another face to face and and experience those relationships without any distractions of social media without any distractions that come with digital technology despite his longing for that return however when he was asked by the author to explain and describe exactly when those relationships occurred, as in, when did you experience this? That teenager was forced to admit, well, I haven't actually ever experienced like that, anything like that. I've never experienced a time when my friends have communicated with each other without any distractions. I've never received any handwritten note from anyone. And so it was fascinating because you hear this teenager simultaneously describe this, this nostalgic past, uh, full of of deep personal communication and yet at the same time acknowledge that it's a past he hasn't actually ever experienced. Yet despite the fact that it was never his own personal experience, he, he innately had this sense of, of desire, of longing, for he knew the relationships he had now were clearly falling short of what he ultimately desired. And so he's still connected with this fantasy of, of living in a world where people actually talk face to face. I mention that book because I think it it so oftentimes or so clearly describes the feeling that so many people have as we come into the Christmas season. For as we get closer and closer to December 25th, our entire society as, as one prepares themselves to celebrate this, this story that we just read in Matthew 1. As people speak of Christmas, they, they find something beautiful in this narrative and they speak of concepts like peace and tranquility and, and love and togetherness and, and they, they speak of it as if this too is something that they experienced in their past. And yet for all the fanfare around Christmas, for all these images of peace and tranquility, the fact of the matter is, is very few people have actually experienced anything like this. And Christmas just 
speaks to them of of some fantasy, of, of some life that while they have never known it personally, they know it represents something they want. And so even for people that have no faith in Jesus Christ whatsoever, there oftentimes is something beautiful found in the story we read in Matthew 1. There's something about this story, something about that concept of Emmanuel, God with us, that touches on a nerve of universal longing, universal struggle. And as we explore this familiar tale today, and more importantly, explore all that leads up to it, my hope is that we can once again understand just why it speaks to all of us. My hope is that we can understand, perhaps more so than ever before, why this declaration of Jesus Christ's birth truly is the answer to the question that, that everyone is ultimately asking. For it is ultimately that which solves all of our longing. It speaks to that permanent relationship that we all so desperately want and need. Before we get to that beauty, we will, of course, explore the separation, explore that struggle. We will explore that longing, and then ultimately we will see the solution that Jesus Christ offers. Before beginning with that universal struggle, though, let us begin our time in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. God, as we look at the text before us, many of us are coming to a story that perhaps we are very familiar with, God. And so it's easy to to tune out a bit in these weeks. It's easy to assume we already fully understand the words of Matthew 1. But God, might none of us be so arrogant, God. Might all of us see with fresh eyes the beauty that this text contains. God, might all of us who are believers in Jesus Christ be reminded this morning of, of where our ultimate rest lies, why it is we celebrate Christmas, And for anyone who is here this morning who has not yet put their faith in Jesus, God, I pray that you use this story this morning to touch on that nerve of of longing. I pray that for the first time this morning you might open their eyes to see the truth, to hear the beauty of the gospel message that is encapsulated in this title, Emmanuel, God with us. And might we all walk out of here this morning all the more prepared to celebrate the birth of your Son, and to live our life in constant exaltation, constant worship of you, knowing that you have, in fact, given us eternal peace that can never be taken away. We praise you, God. We do love you. Bless this time we have now, Lord. Remove all distractions from around us, God. Cause us to be focused entirely on what you have in store for us, God. And might it all be done to your glory and to the praise of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. As I mentioned earlier, in order to appreciate the beauty of Matthew 1, the the glory of the declaration of the angel to Joseph, we must begin not in the beginning of Matthew, but we must turn the pages back to the beginning of time itself. We must consider all that has taken place before this. And so if you would, turn back with me to the very beginning of time, to the book of Genesis. For it is in these early chapters of Genesis that we find the the birth of our universal struggle, we find why it is we all are so discontent. We understand as we turn back to Genesis 1 and 2 that 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 struggle was not always the case. It was not always the experience of us. For in the very beginning, before the fall, mankind lived in, in paradise. There, if you read through the verses of Genesis 1 and 2, you you find again a familiar tale in which God the Creator speaks everything into existence. He speaks everything to an existence, and as He does so, it lives, it moves, it exists to perfection. 
And so at the end of this account in Genesis, say, chapter 1, you have these precious words. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, and we see, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. In these very few words, we have just this, this vision of perfection. We are reminded of the fact that in the very beginning, Mankind, Adam and Eve, lived in peace, lived in tranquility. They experienced perfection and how they loved one another and how they related to creation, to nature around them. Most significantly, of course, in that paradise, mankind experienced this, this presence of their creator. They lived directly in the presence of their perfect and righteous and good provider, ruler, and, and sustainer. And for those precious few moments, they experienced a joy that we perhaps have a difficult time even imagining. And yet, of course, despite the level of that joy, despite that perfection, we know that, that it was short-lived. For although they did, in fact, have everything they could ever possibly desire, mankind fell under temptation. And they decided that it was not good enough. They decided, under the influence of Satan that it would be best to try to reject God's rule. That it would be best for them to push off against him and attempt to become their own gods. And so we have the story of the fall in Genesis chapter 3 in which humanity sins. They disobey their perfect creator, hoping that it will provide some, some greater level of paradise. But of course the result of their disobedience was the complete opposite of that. For in Genesis chapter 3, in response to their sin, God brings this perfect judgment down upon all of creation. When suddenly all that peace, all that tranquility, all that beauty is, is marred, it is broken. And so the relationship between Adam and Eve is, is broken. It is hurtful. The relationship between man and nature is, is more difficult. Mankind begins to toil and sweat and the ground only produces thorns and thistles. In this curse, you have really the explanation of of every frustration that you still experience today. And at the foundation of all those frustrations, we see that there is not simply just a brokenness between man and wife, not simply a brokenness between man and creation, but most foundationally, most tragically, there's a brokenness that suddenly exists between man and God. You see this brokenness, this separation, beautifully portrayed at the very end of Genesis chapter 3, and in verse 24, where we read, So he, that is God, drove man out. He kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Here at the end of Genesis 3, we see this, this separation suddenly begin. Mankind is kicked out of the garden into the wilderness. And in these few words, we have this picture of, of what we still struggle under today. We have this introduction to man's struggle of, of separation, not just from paradise, but separation from their perfect, loving, just God. And as mankind enters into that wilderness, life is no longer characterized by beauty, but it is characterized by death, both physical death and spiritual death, that is separation from him. And it is from this moment forward that mankind universally experiences the pain and the anguish of, of, of what it means to be separated from their life source. What it means to be separated from God. It is a tragic existence. 
and it is one that gives birth into our, our second point. It gives birth into this universal longing. From the moment man is kicked out of the garden, they all desire constantly to return to the garden. They desire to return to God. They, they long for that peace. They long for that, that completion. You see this longing described time and time again throughout the Old Testament. And biblically speaking, we understand this longing finds its, its origin not simply in the struggle of man, but it finds its origin in the promise of God himself. For even as God curses humanity and curses all creation there in Genesis chapter 3 you also see God make this this brief promise regarding the future and there as God speaks to Satan our great enemy he says I will put enmity between you that is Satan and the woman between your seed and her seed he shall bruise you on the head you shall bruise him on the heel here in these very few words you have this this first mysterious promise of some future figure that God says will come. And we don't know much about this future figure from Genesis 3, but we know that it will be a man for he comes from the seed of Eve. So there's this, this future child that will be born. And we know that somehow this future child will be better than Adam and Eve. This future child will succeed where Adam and Eve failed, for they will defeat Satan. We know very little else about him at this moment, but, but we know and humanity knows that the separation that they suffer under is not permanent. And so from Genesis 3 forward, the people of God are, are longingly anticipating that future mysterious figure. As you unfold the narrative of the Old Testament, you see other details come out to describe this, this future Messiah, as he is called. And as you read a number of these prophecies, you understand that this future child is, is not just some mere child. He, he is prophesied to be a, a great king. A king that will rule his people. A king that will come from the seed, will come from the line of, of the great Old Testament King David. Speaking to that king's rule in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 9, the prophet describes this future ruler with these perhaps familiar words to many of us here. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, speaking of that future figure, he says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David, over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Time and time again, God, speaking through his prophets, speaks of this future king, this future Messiah. This figure that was once prophesied in Genesis 3, this figure that is detailed increasingly throughout the Old Testament narrative, he is the one that, that represents Israel's great hope. He is the one that will ultimately fulfill the other great promises that God makes to his people. For again, throughout the Old Testament, God reminds his people that they do belong to him. And God promises people time and time again that he will never completely leave them. He will never forsake them. You see these promises in, in Deuteronomy and again the prophet Isaiah. God speaks just as powerfully of that promised presence. Turn a few pages over in Isaiah 41 and 
you can read some of those words, those words that must have represented incredible hope, incredible longing to the people of Israel. There in Isaiah chapter 41, God says this to his people, beginning in verse 8. He says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendants of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts, I said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you, not rejected you. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. If you continue to read through the rest of Isaiah 41, you see these these promises that God makes of of telling his people, I will be with you. I, I will save you. I will send you that king. And he will deliver you from this judgment, from this separation. And so if you're an Israelite throughout the Old Testament, you know very well this, this longing. You know very well that, that you are awaiting the arrival of this future and perfect king who will deliver you from this horrific existence of separation. And so you long for it. You, you anxiously await for his birth. And yet while the Israelites, of course, knew this longing uniquely, while they were able to trace it in Scripture, we understand that the people of God were not the only people longing. Israel was not the only nation waiting for something to improve. For as you read through Old Testament religions, you find numerous stories that speak also of this future desire for for future completion that speaks of this reality that life is not the way it's supposed to be. You don't have to delve into ancient myths to find this, of course. You can simply think of of the stories that you and I are familiar with in our own culture that that speak of that same story told by both believers but also unbelievers alike. I think back to the story of Robin Hood, a story that I loved as a child. That story, you you have this surprisingly familiar tale, don't you? Where you have the the main character, Robin Hood, but, but living in the distance is, of course, righteous King Richard whose return Robin Hood is awaiting, whose return will mean the return of righteousness and the overthrow of that unrighteous wicked king. Even if you're not familiar with that story, many of you are familiar with modern-day equivalents. You look at the success of, of, Mar- of the Marvel Universe in our movies today. What is the story of pretty much every superhero movie and comic book? Well, it's the story of a human plight and some distant god some distant superhero that's able to come and and rescue us, some person that's better than us, stronger than us, smarter than us, faster than us, and and we're eagerly awaiting his or her return to to lift us up from the muck and mire. People love that story. The same story is told over and over again in in countless successful television programs. Stories that revolve around the, the return of a righteous king, the enthronement of that perfect individual that will bring back justice and peace and righteousness. It's a story that is told in every generation. It's a story that is loved in every generation. And it's fascinating when you consider its popularity, especially in light of how it runs in direct contrast to the other popular narrative of today, that that narrative of self-rule, of self-autonomy. And we live in a culture that loves to to speak as if we can do anything we set our minds to. We live in a society in which we speak of ourselves as if we are our own gods, And yet, deep down, that narrative is not enough to keep our culture going. 
For just as our culture screams and demands independence, it also turns out one story after another that speaks of our innate desire for a king. Our innate longing for someone better than us to save us from ourselves. It's a narrative that will never go away. And so even amongst those who profess no faith in Jesus whatsoever, there is this innate longing, this nostalgia in which a person longs for for the return of an individual even if they have never seen them before. This explains, no doubt, why so much of the debates in our political arena are so passionate, so vitriolic. For as you listen to how people describe our political leaders, you hear the same messianic language. And people put all their faith in some political figure believing that this person will will make us great again somehow. This person will somehow return us to this, this golden age. This person will save us from ourselves, solve all of our problems, will make everything better. And of course, it's a ridiculous pipe dream to believe any individual can do this, and yet we insist upon it. Because we know we need something outside of ourselves. We know we are still a broken people that are longing for a more perfect life, even if we've never experienced that perfect life ourselves. And so the world as a whole understands and experiences this universal longing. And of course, tragically, just as common as that longing is the universal disappointment that comes with it. You see that disappointment all around us in our culture today? We are discontent. We are unhappy. One Marvel movie clearly is not enough for our culture. We need one every other month, it seems. We need new promises. We need the story retold. We need things to get better because regardless of all the advancements we've made, regardless of how much better we are perhaps than than just a few years ago, we know that this is not what we were hoping for. We know it's still falling short. We just can't explain why. You look back to the longing in Scripture, and the people of God, of course, understood why it wasn't enough. For while the people of God did, of course, see numerous prophecies fulfilled throughout the Old Testament, while there were kings, and while there were various aspects of Israel's history that were enjoyable, as a whole, it was one disappointment after another. If you turn back to the Gospel of Matthew, you you can see some of that disappointment in, in the language of a genealogy. We did not read it, but if you look back at Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, you have this, this genealogy, a sort of language I know in text that we often skip over, because let's face it, not too exciting on paper. But when you consider the names of each of these individuals in light of the experience and the struggle and the longing of the Israelites, you understand how much emotion this sort of genealogy can stir up. For in this genealogy, you have some great kings. Great David is referenced here, a king that did great things in the name of God, in the same way you have Solomon and others who were used by God in mighty ways. But just frequently throughout the course of these names, you have other figures that fell far short of the people's expectations. Wicked kings throughout the Old Testament, who although they they carried the title of king, they carried a character that fell far short of what the people were hoping for, were longing for. And towards the very end of this genealogy, you have not just the absence of a good king, but the absence of kings as a whole. For at the end of the genealogy prior to Christ, you have this tragic experience of the people of God carried away into captivity. You see that mentioned in 
verse 17, the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. We read those words and perhaps they don't mean a whole lot to us, but if you are living in the midst of the 14 generations that were lived in, in captivity, you understand how much suffering that speaks to. 14 generations, it said, of people who saw nothing in terms of prophecy fulfilled. In fact, as many of you already know, prior to the opening of the New Testament, we see 400 years of utter silence from God as his people suffered, not just under an unrighteous king, but, but under a pagan, wicked empire. And in the midst of those 400 years of silence, you can only imagine the level of anguish that must have been coming up in the hearts of so many of those Israelites. For they knew the promises. They knew that God told them he would send a king. They knew that they still were longing for this reconciliation, for, for that bridge to be gapped or, or to, between them and their creator. And yet in the midst of that longing, where was this king? And in the midst of all the sacrifices they made, all the animals that had been butchered on behalf of their sin, where was their forgiveness? Where was any state of permanence? Where was security? And most importantly, where is God? Where are you, God? That is the cry of the people throughout the Old Testament. And again, it's the cry of all of us today, even if we do not put it in those words. For we long for reconciliation. We innately know that there is something better there for us. We just don't understand how it's possible. And yet as impossible as that restoration must have felt by the end of that 400 years, as distant as God must have felt at the end of those 400 years, suddenly in the, in the gospel of Matthew, suddenly the light comes on. And suddenly you have a complete solution to every single longing the people have ever had. Suddenly you have the solution to every ounce of suffering they have gone through. Suddenly you have this declaration that God's promises are being fulfilled. And you can understand or perhaps begin to appreciate then how rich every word that the angel speaks to Joseph in this. For as the narrative picks up again, we have Joseph and Mary, two individuals that are living in captivity. Two individuals that knew the law of God well. And two individuals that suddenly find themselves expecting the birth of a child. We understand from the text that this birth announcement is not as glorious as, as one would hope. For Joseph and Mary are not yet married, and so it would seem that Mary has been unfaithful. And so Joseph, being a righteous man, is trying to figure out how he can end this relationship without humiliating Mary. And yet as he's trying to decide how he can go about this, suddenly this angel appears, and, and as he appears, he greets Joseph in, in the strangest way. Look there again. In verse 20, as Joseph is considering this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. The first thing we see in this declaration of God's solution is this regal greeting that Joseph is given by the angel. And at first glance, it might seem like a bit of, of overkill, doesn't it? And who's Joseph? Come on, he, he's nothing significant. And yet here the angel appears and says, 
Joseph, son of David. Why would the angel call him that? Be weird if someone greeted you and referenced your great-great-great-grandfather. But of course, in in the Jewish context, in the, the biblical context, we understand what the angel is doing, don't we? For the angel is not simply saying, hello, Joseph. The angel is greeting Joseph and immediately bringing to mind those, those messianic promises of the Old Testament. By calling Joseph the son of David, he is immediately speaking back to those promises made so many hundreds of years ago. And so you know from the very beginning that this child that Mary is pregnant with it's not just any child. This child is, is somehow the fulfillment of the Davidic line. This child is this future king of which Yahweh had promised his people so many times. As you continue to read the language of the angel, you see it does not just in there. This is not just any king. This is the deliverer that they were hoping for. Again, pick it back up in verse 21. They're continuing to speak to Joseph. The angel says, She, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now here, if if your attention was not already grabbed by the greeting of of greetings, Joseph, son of David, here the language is, is no doubt incredible to consider. For here, the angel does not simply say that this son is is going to be the next king. He says this son will be named Jesus. And why Jesus? Because he will deliver his people. Not just from some political exile, although that ultimately was, was clearly hope of the people of God. But the angel says, no, this king will be a deliverer from the sins of the people. And even though you you read the confusion of the Jews throughout the gospel accounts, even though it is clear that so many Jews were were hoping primarily for a, a, a deliverer from the Romans, you can read through the Old Testament and see time and time again how the people of God understood that it was this spiritual deliverance that they ultimately needed. You consider the words of the great king himself, David, back in Psalm chapter 30, or 130. In Psalm 130, in one of these songs of ascents going to worship God, you can find this prayer of David in Psalm 130, beginning in verse 5. There he says, I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait. In his word do I hope, my soul waits for the Lord. More than the watchman for the morning, indeed more for the watchman in the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness, with him is abundant redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This was the ultimate hope of Israel. Not just for a king, but for for an individual that can bring about spiritual reconciliation as well. For again, the people understood they just didn't need rescue from some external threat. They needed rescue from themselves. They needed someone who, who could not only bring political power, but bring spiritual restoration. And the angel says, this is exactly what this king will do. But of course, if if we were to stop here, the question that we have to ask is, well, how on earth could anyone do this? How could anyone come along hundreds of years, or after hundreds of years of complete silence, how could anyone come so far removed from those original promises and not only be the seed of Eve, not only be this uh, this, this great king, 
But how could he also bring about deliverance from sins? How is this possible? Well, the reason why it's possible is not so much in his name, Jesus, but it's in this latter name that Matthew speaks of. For again, in a way that that summarizes, in essence, all that Jesus was and all that the angel just said, we find these words in verse 22 and 23. Matthew there, describing these events, says, Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall be with a child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. The reason why this child, the reason why this king could not simply only bring political restoration but spiritual restoration is summarized in this title, Emmanuel. And as Matthew says, this is ultimately the the title of Christ. This is why he is able to do what he does. And again, in using this language, many of us might initially be confused, namely because, well, that's not Jesus' name, is it? No one calls Jesus Emmanuel when he's born. He's already called Jesus. But Matthew knows that. Matthew instead is not simply referencing the name that is given to him by Joseph. He's referencing yet another famous prophecy back in Isaiah. Specifically, in the prophet Isaiah chapter 7. They're speaking of the future Messiah, again, in the midst of so many other prophecies. Isaiah says these words in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10. Actually, we'll pick it up in verse 14, to be clear. There in verse 14, God speaking to one of the lesser kings, Ahaz, and speaking of the future greater king, God says these words, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. She will call his name Emmanuel. Yet again, in, in very few words, we have this brief glimpse that God gives of this future Messiah. And what is so interesting here is, again, it's given in direct contrast to the lesser kings, like King Ahaz. And while the truth of the matter was not fully understood in Isaiah's time, what Matthew is declaring here is that, that the reason why he's called Emmanuel, the reason why he can do something that David himself couldn't do, the reason why he can fulfill something that Adam couldn't do, the reason why he can do something that the entire nation of Israel couldn't do, is because he's not just a man. He's God. And as shocking as it is, As difficult as it is still to believe today, what Matthew, what the Word of God is declaring to us is that in this declaration and in the birth of Jesus Christ, we do not simply have God sending another great figure like David. Rather, we see God entering into the story himself. We see God doing the necessary work to come down from on high and to rescue his people just as he had always promised. And so in Jesus we have this figure who is truly Emmanuel. He is God with us. And as you consider this name, suddenly perhaps all all the promises of the Old Testament begin to come back together and, and to be fulfilled. For just as we mentioned earlier, all those promises of the Old Testament 
did not simply revolve around God sending a king. It, it revolved in, around this, this concept of God's presence. God promised to always be with his people. God promised to bring his people back. The book of Hosea, a book that we're going through in our Sunday school class, is this imagery of, of God loving his people, redeeming his people. And the question is always, okay, how are you going to do that, God? And the answer throughout all these texts is ultimately fulfilled in here, Matthew 1. It's fulfilled in the declaration of the Incarnation. It's fulfilled in this precious child, Jesus Christ, who is so precious, who is so grand, because he is the presence of God within us. This is why the birth of Christ then is so significant. This is why this child is able to fulfill all the promises. It's because he's God. As we celebrate the birth of Jesus, then we understand we are celebrating, again, the answer to all of our deepest longings. We're celebrating the story that that answers our greatest trouble, our greatest problem. We're celebrating the fact that God, in fact, kept his promise. That he did come. He came fully God and fully man, something that Pastor Eric will further explore next week. But he came as this fully God, fully man Savior so that we too could be rescued from our sins. This was the solution that God was always pointing us towards. The solution that we still desperately need today. Brothers and sisters in Christ, there is a reason why Christmas speaks to us at such a deep level. There's a reason why the story of Matthew 1 retains so much beauty and significance, both in the minds of both believers and unbelievers alike. It's because in this simple name, Manuel, we have both the struggle of humanity and humanity's longing ultimately fulfilled, ultimately captured. Again, it's a reality that many people, or that all people desire, but a reality so few people have yet to put into words. And so as we consider these words, and as we come to a close, the question is whether or not you and I fully appreciate this declaration. Whether or not we understand why Emmanuel is so significant. For so many of you here today who are an unbeliever, I I trust the Christmas holds a certain, certain level of excitement for you. I trust this time of year is, is beautiful, or perhaps it's not. Perhaps this is a, a particularly difficult time of year for you, as the holidays are. But what I'm here to tell you is that the reason why you struggle, the reason why you so desperately hope and wish that Christmas will provide some sort of completion is because of what is declared about Jesus here. Unbeliever, my prayer for all of you is that you might understand that in Jesus, you have ultimately the answer to your own personal longing. Regardless of the level of your suffering, regardless of your background, regardless of where you currently are at this moment, Jesus is the answer to to all of it. He alone can bring peace. He alone can bring completion. He alone can fulfill that longing and, and bring about that permanence that you so very desperately desire. But in order to experience it, you cannot simply celebrate Christmas. You must place your faith in him, understanding he is the king. And he demands your allegiance. And so my prayer is that all of you might do that this morning. If you have questions about that, please let me know. I would be happy to talk to you afterwards. I'll be in the lobby. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, my prayer is that we might all again be renewed in our appreciation of this name. Earlier as we sang, O come, O come, Emmanuel, I admit in my own heart it's easy to be looking down at my notes be looking around to try to figure out who's here. 
and not really understand the weight of what it is I'm singing. Not really understand the weight of this declaration of Emmanuel and this, this concept that God is in fact with us. And so oftentimes it's easy for us to become distracted in this time of year, isn't it? It's easy to get caught up in the fanfare of, of all that comes with the Christmas season and it's easy to forget just how significant this name of Christ is. And so for my brothers and sisters in Christ, my hope is that we might all understand that Jesus Christ is in fact still the answer to all of our longing and he still is our constant rest. And so believers in Christ, let us rejoice in that fact. Let us return to this declaration that is made in Matthew 1 and let us rejoice in the fact that all of our longing is, is found in Jesus and that we no longer need to doubt his presence, we no longer need to doubt his goodness for Jesus Christ has come and he is still with us today. As we understand that, then and then alone can we understand the beauty of this season. Then and then alone can we understand why we celebrate Christmas. Let's go and close our time in prayer. And we'll get going. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for today. God, we thank you for all that you've done for us, God. God, our culture loves stories about, about distant heroes arriving on the scene about superhero figures arriving and, and pulling us out of the muck and mire. We love the, the concept and the story that it tells. But God, we praise you for the fact that in the story of the birth of Jesus, we find a story that eclipses anything else that humanity could ever come up with on their own. God, you could have simply sent another David. You could have sent another king you could have sent an endless number of individuals that reflect your glory, that reflect your beauty. But God, you chose to come yourself. You chose to send your son, Jesus Christ. And while we cannot fully understand it, perhaps, God, we know that in him we do have our Savior who is both fully God and fully man. We have Emmanuel. We have your presence. God, there are many here who this morning do not yet know you who have not experienced your presence, who still desperately long for that reconciliation. I pray this morning they might understand that reconciliation is found entirely in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, God. Break them of their sin this morning, God. Cause their eyes to be open to the truth of Jesus' offer. And might, for the first time, they understand where their longings are ultimately fulfilled, God. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, God, might we once again be renewed in our appreciation of who Jesus is, might we never utter the name Emmanuel without truly considering just the weight and glory of that saying? But might we rejoice daily knowing that you have fulfilled all of your promises for us, God. That in your son, Jesus Christ, you are present, past, present, and future, God. And so might we walk daily in that assurance and that security, God. We love you so much, God, and we praise you. Be with us this morning. Be with us throughout the rest of the time as we continue to prepare to celebrate the birth of your son, Jesus. And as we do so, Lord, might we eagerly await his return, knowing that it is certain. We praise you and pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name, amen.